Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. We're in a series on the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are what Jesus said his family is all about. And we are in week six of eight, week seven, excuse me, of eight. We have one week left. And it seems to me, at least for me, they get more and more difficult. And maybe that's just because I'm pressing in more thoroughly and regularly to the ways of God's family. And when I do that, I'm reminded of what I need to live into because that's what family I belong to. And so today is a tough topic. Today we're talking about the, the idea of peace. Because here's where we're going to start is if we talk about peace, I think we need to begin with an honest conversation about how good we are at being peaceful. And I think when we look around, the only answer I can come to is that we're not that good. We're coming off another week of another shooting, and I look around and I think, why is this world in chaos and conflict and not peace? Because when God created, he created a peaceful world. And at the end, it says that peace will reign again. But right now, it doesn't seem to be that way. It seems like there's one conflict after the other, whether it's a big shooting or fight in my life, I'm better at conflict than I am peace. Thomas Jefferson said it like this. He said, peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. There's actually, the world has only been at peace in recorded history for 8% of recorded history. We are not fundamentally good at peace. We are way better at conflict than we are at peace. And the question I want to ask, if God created this world to be peaceful, and he's going to come back and bring peace again. Why is it that way? So if we can talk about why we don't have peace, why we have conflict, then maybe we can get into what peace is according to God and what we as followers of Jesus can do about it. Because if God created the world full of and with the desire towards peace, we seem to have lost our way week in and week out as I listen to the news and as I read People all around me, Andy, I don't know if he told you today, but Andy got his car broken into this week. We don't live in a peaceful world, and there are moments of it, but it's not the overarching narrative. There was, after the atomic bomb was dropped in World War II, which is the biggest bomb that's ever been dropped in the history of the world and killed the most people at one time that had ever been killed in the history of the world, Albert Einstein in 1948 was talking about what he's scared of. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, I'm scared of bombs. This is what he said. He says, it's not a physical problem, but an ethical one. What terrifies us is not the explosive force of the atomic bomb, but the power of the wickedness of the human heart. It's explosive power for evil. That is a telling statement. He says that we as a people have a proclivity towards evil, towards chaos, towards conflict, and not towards peace. And I see it. I see it coming off an election week. I see it coming off another shooting. I see it in my day-to-day. I see it. And the question I need to ask is why is it that way? And then when God says that we are peacemakers, what does that mean in a world full of chaos and conflict? What, What does that mean for you and I? James says it like this in James chapter 4. He says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. 
You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it from them. It seems to be an innate problem with us. When we landed on the moon, Billy Graham, he's funny, we landed in a part of the moon called the Sea of Tranquility. And Billy Graham responded when we landed in the Sea of Tranquility. He said, give it time, let us be there a little while, and then we'll need to change the name, right? It's that idea that where we go, conflict follows. We are not that good at peace. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be the sons, they will be the children of God, what he's calling us into is an altogether unnatural state that's very, very difficult for us to live into because it's not how we're wired now, because it doesn't come natural. So before we dive into this text, before we talk about the tension of peace and the rhythm that God called us into, we're going to take some time and pray for us like we do every week. Two goals here at Crossroads on Sunday mornings. One is we want to know God, so we open the scriptures. We want to know and search and get to know a God who is unknowable in a really beautiful way. That means he's bigger than me, because if I could know him, that is scary. Two is we want to experience God, and we need both those things, right? So if we know God without experience, it's just cold. If we experience God without knowing who God is, without the depth of understanding, without the study of theology, then it's just shallow. And this is a two-way street. It's not just entertainment on a Sunday morning from the guy with the cold. We trust that the Holy Spirit speaks in your life to where you need him to speak because God is active in this room right now. So we're going to pray that we might be able to listen and discern the Spirit's voice this morning, that God might teach you about God's character, and that in that we might experience his goodness this morning. So I'm going to ask that you pray to yourself for a few seconds and that you pray for me. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful um, that we can gather here this morning and for cold weather and for just the beauty that comes when your people gather together and refocus on what's true and good and right. I pray today as we deal with a tough subject of peace in a chaotic world, that you show us what peace is in our world and how we can be for it. God, I pray that you open the scriptures and speak to us. Ask now if you are comfortable You might take a couple seconds and just to yourself pray that God teaches you and that God grows you today in in your understanding of him. And I'd ask that you pray for me, that my words might be edifying, that they might be encouraging, that God uses what I say for his purposes through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you've got a Bible, Matthew 5, verse 9, that's where we're at today. It's this idea of, again, the Beatitudes, and it starts like this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. If you haven't been with us for the last seven weeks, we always start by saying two things. One is that when God calls us into action, it's because we're a part of his family, not because we're earning his favor. This is not a sermon that says, if you want God to like you, be peaceful. This is a sermon like all the other Beatitudes that say this is a value of God's family. And as God's family, we get the distinct privilege to live out the family values of God. We don't do it to earn God's approval. We do it because we already have God's approval through Jesus. It's a beautiful statement, but one that might be nuanced, but is really important for our motivation. And two, if you haven't been with us, we always start by defining the word blessed, right? Because we live in a culture with the accumulation of stuff, and usually when we hear blessing, we think stuff, but that's not what Jesus meant. When we hear blessing, we think stuff, or we think growing, or accumulation, or wealth. 
What Jesus meant was something different. We define blessing each week as is. To be blessed is defined fulfillment and aligning your practices with God's principles. What that means is sometimes it looks like stuff, and that's great, and God is good. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it just looks like the simple joy of knowing that we're living into something better. And as we see God's influence grow, as we live out the family values and rhythms of God's kingdom, it gives us joy. As we see a more merciful church, even if we are less wealthy today than we were yesterday, my fulfillment is growing because I'm aligning my practices with the principles that we value as God's family. What that means is that it's sustainable joy that doesn't go anywhere if you're happy, mad, sad, or glad. It means that God's goodness follows us as we live into God's principles and is not up to the whims of your good and bad days. And that's beautiful. So when he says blessed, what he's saying is, might your fulfillment of joy increase the more you live into these principles, no matter what your outside circumstances tell you. And so each week we've tracked what it means to be that kind of blessed. And this week we go to blessed are the peacemakers. That we're peacemakers, we're going to define some terms a little bit because that's a pretty big word. And peace over the course of human history has had different nuances for it. So let's talk about what peace meant in the first century world. The first century world was very unique. It was occupied, about 70% of it was occupied by Rome. In about eight or BC 2930, you had this guy named Octavius, and he was an emperor of Rome, and he beat Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, and he ushered in this 300-year flourishing of the human race called Pax Romana. Pax Romana literally meant just the peace of Rome that, it, that extended through the entire earth. Here's the deal. That peace only comes, the Roman ideal of peace only comes through victory in battle. Peace is then a byproduct of oppression, right? So if you say to a Roman man, woman, a Jewish person in the first century world, we're going to have peace, I guarantee you the first thing they thought about was I am stronger than you, so my peace will be at the whims of your weakness. I can establish, I can oppress my peace on you. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, what they heard most likely was blessed are those who are so strong that their way wins because they've won it. And, and usually, I don't think we're too much different than that, you know? I think culturally we're not that much different. I think we like to be mighty and strong. In um, the 1800s, wild, wild west country, the most popular gun, Wyatt Earp had it, was a gun called the Colt 45. You know what the nickname of the Colt 45 was? the peacemaker, right? It's this idea that even in our culture, intrinsic to who we are, we believe that victory in battle equates to peace. We believe that peace comes through me oppressing. Peace comes through me winning. Peace comes through me flexing my strength. Peace then was a byproduct of battle. And I think we in some ways believe that, right? If I yell louder than you, I will have peace. If I'm more right than you, my peace will reign and we will be good, you know? And then two, this first century world was kind of a, a, a meshing together of three predominant cultures. And it was Jewish culture, a Greek culture, and a Roman culture. So the Greek culture... Their idea of peace was a, was a static state, but it, it really was kind of like a binary state, sorry, if you will. It was either on or it was off. So peace literally was simply the absence of conflict. You were in peace if there wasn't war. It'd be like, when I go home now, I know what that is. Because if I walk in my door, peace in my family versus non-peace in my family is if I walk in and my kid is screaming, we are not at peace. 
If I walk in and there's silence, then right now our household has peace, everybody, right? It's this, it's this state of, this binary state of simply being defined as the lack of conflict, the lack of war. See, this Roman ideal that peace was oppression brought about because I'm bigger, faster, stronger than you, and I can own you if I want to. And then you have this Greek ideal that peace is simply the absence of conflict. What Jesus does is he says peace is more than that. But before we get into what biblical peace is, I want to take a second and, and talk about the tension between peace and conflict. Today's sermon is, is not a sermon for pacifism. If you're a pacifist and you're a Christian, that's a beautiful thing, and I'm sure you have a lot of reasons why. But what I don't want you to hear is this shallow reading that peace is simply, like the Greeks believe, the absence of conflict. Because, simply put, there are things worth fighting for. We see it in Scripture. Today happens to be Veterans Day, and my grandfather fought, and my dad was in the Navy, and my sister's in the Army, and I am so incredibly thankful for everybody that fights for the things that we value because there are things worth fighting for. And I'm grateful for the service of those men and women. We see it in the scriptures. If you want to look at how Jesus saw peace, Jesus was the prince of peace, which means he could do nothing that wasn't fighting for, if you will, peace. And this is what happens in Matthew 21. He's about to go to the cross and he walks into the temple and it says this, Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. If we believe peace is always a lack of conflict, Jesus doesn't seem to share that view. And why he was so mad, just for a little context, is in the Jewish first century world, you had one temple, and it was in Jerusalem, and every Jew, no matter where you lived, had to pay a temple tax. It was about a day and a half's wages. And, and the, the nut of it was that you could only use one currency. They only approved one currency that you could use to pay your temple tax. And so what would happen is you'd have all these people that came in from all over the region to pay their temple tax, but they had their own money. And so what would happen was you had these money changers on the outside of the temple and they would say, well, we're the only ones with the kind of money you need. And if you're the only ones with the kinds of money people need to pay their temple tax to, in their world, make God love you, then you can charge whatever you want in an exchange rate. And so what happened with these awful men and women would use the temple tax to get rich themselves. They would make these outlandish exchange rates so that they could line their pockets because there's only one kind of currency that the temple accepted. And then they would have these tables of doves nearby and they said, well, you got to sacrifice this kind of dove. And they would charge exorbitant rates for this one kind of animal. They used the things of God for themselves. And so Jesus walks into this situation and circumstance and sees what should be a God-glorifying situation and he sees it glorifying guys instead and he just loses it because some things are worth fighting for. It says in James 3, if you want to what those things are, and again, it's just a little side note. It says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Here's the deal. We never sacrifice the purity of the message of God for peace. Sometimes things are worth fighting for. John Piper says it like this. Purity takes precedence over peace. Purity is the basis of biblical peace. Purity may not be compromised in order to make peace. So when we talk about blessed are the peacemakers, we have to start understanding that God calls us into something that is not natural, but it's not void of conflict. What he calls us into is a lifestyle that is not natural in the time and space. And what he says is that peace is different than you thought. It's more than just muscle. 
It's more than just the byproduct of oppression. It's more than just a static state or a, 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 it's more than just a state of, of, of conflict or not conflict. Peace is deeper and it's richer and it's all of you. And so if you look at a biblical peace, a couple things we see um, just as we get into it, really three components to a biblical peace. And a lot of this, we're gonna run through it pretty quickly. We did a month sermon series on this in August and September. Um, but if we're talking about biblical peace, I think the first place that we have to look is right in the mirror. So we gotta look to where we began, which is if there was peace, Adam and Eden made bad decisions and said my ways are better than God's ways and that invited conflict in our world or not peace. And it ends with peace again. I think the first thing the beatitude tells us is blessed are the peacemakers. Peace begins with your relationship with God. And like all the beatitudes, we have different levels of application and meaning because it's nuanced and it's good. And like all the Beatitudes, so take the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's this idea that you need this to understand that you need God's family. And if you're void of poverty of spirit, you probably will never come into the family of God because you don't know you need it. But it's not just a one-time event that makes you realize you need Jesus. It's lived out in our everyday as we take this principle that brought us to Jesus and say, now it affects my Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. When he says, blessed are the peacemakers, it is absolutely reflecting a greater principle and truth that as sinners and as people that live against God's good ways, we are at war with, not at peace with God. The Bible puts it like this in, um, excuse me, the Bible puts it like this in Isaiah 59. Your iniquities, your sin, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden, and, and your sins have hidden his face, God's face from you so that he does not hear. It's this idea that our sin separates and brings conflict where there is peace. And until we realize that, we don't understand we need the family of God. But here's what the work of Jesus does. This is the Gospel 101, Ephesians 2.12. Christ Jesus, in him you were once far away, but you have been brought near by his blood, together as one body. It's this idea that what Jesus did was reconcile all things. Colossians actually uses that language in Colossians 1. We're going to be here quite a bit today. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or in heaven. What peace is, is the reconciliation of ourselves with the God we were created for, first and fundamentally. And that idea of reconciliation, which is, which is core to what peace is, that idea of reconciliation is simply moving from brokenness to wholeness. Moving from brokenness to wholeness. I had a buddy of mine who played soccer in college. We were living together five or six years ago before I had colds all the time. And as we were living together, he uh, blew his ACL. And he was an active guy, played in all these uh, leagues for work, soccer leagues. And he was very, very good. And uh, I lived with him through the process of rehabbing his ACL. And if you guys have blown one of these things, there's, I think, three different ways they can replace it. One of them is, I think they put like a pig something rather than his leg. I don't have any idea. It grossed me out. I stopped listening. But the point is that in his rehab, he would tell me this story, and I loved it. In his rehab, they would have him run full speed and then chop his steps and just stop on the leg that he blew his ACL at, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it because in his mind, one, it hurt a lot when it blew, and he didn't want to revisit that pain. But the, the guy that was his physical therapist just kept telling him, hey, you got to trust it. Believe it or not, and you don't believe it right now, and I can make all sorts of analogies how we choose not to believe it, but 
that ACL is stronger than the one your other leg. When God says that he reconciles through Jesus, it's not him repairing, it's him replacing our relationship with him, giving us a, like we talked about last week, a new heart and saying, now we are strong. It's tough for us to live into and believe that because we believe we're just repaired, not replaced. But God says, I've given you a new spirit. I've given you a new identity. I've given you the righteousness that my son Jesus has. That's how I see you when he says that I, in, in Colossians 1, when he says that I have come to reconcile all things, he's taking us from brokenness to utter and complete wholeness. He's saying it begins with your relationship with me and it impacts the rest of your life. Because here's the truth of the scripture. This is what Jesus talks about is that your relationship with God is not simply spiritual. I grew up in churches and I grew up being told that the reason I need to trust Jesus is that I don't go to hell. And that's good. Like that's, that's a win for everybody, you know? It's a beautiful thing, but we miss the depth of the tomorrow there. If all we're focused on is a God who cares about heaven one day, then clearly he doesn't necessarily care too much about my tomorrow if it's not just to bring other people to heaven. And in that, we miss the depth of a God who cares about, like last week we talked about, all of us. And so when we talk about reconciliation in terms of our relationship with God, we understand that peace begins there, but it does not end there. We understand that peace with God leads to peace with others. And so we know that our peace begins with God and then overflows onto our relationship with others. Continue in Ephesians 2, it says together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility towards each other was put to death. Okay, <laughs> that's written to a Jewish audience that thought they didn't need anybody. That's written to a Jewish audience that believed they were better than all the other people because God spoke to them a few thousand years before he spoke to everybody else. That's written to a Jewish audience that fundamentally believed God didn't even care about other people. He says this, this peace that God brought to your life through Jesus ends your chaos and conflict with the people around you. And I love this. We can't stop and think that our peace with God is just about our peace with God. It has to overflow with the other people in our lives because that's what Jesus came to show us. That's why he doesn't just say repent and move on, but he repents and then he heals people. That's why he ties the physical and the spiritual because our God is a God of all of us, not just some of us. Because our God is God of tomorrow, not just when Jesus comes back because he cares about all of it. And so what he says is your peace with God is made so that you might make peace with other people. It overflows onto all of those people around us, however different they might be. And that is one of the beauties of the church. We talk on staff and we talk in different forums. I was in a pastor's group this last week and talked about it. Talk about the advent of the online church and that there are good things and there are bad things with that. And I believe that there are good and bad things that come with the online church. One of the bads is you're reminded when you show up in person that God loves people that might be different than you. It's tough to believe that when I'm in my living room, you know? And so our, our reconciliation, our peace with God begins with God, but then overflows onto other people. And finally, it extends to the world around us. Colossians 1, for he was pleased to have his fullness dwell in the Son and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross, whether things on heaven or on things on earth. So what we see here is again this idea that God's desire for peace is beyond just you and God, beyond just you and your friends, but it extends to all of creation. I had a 
a guy that came in and spoke at Moody. I, you know, we went to chapel four times a week, give or take. More people went than others because um, they were godless people that just didn't show up and had people cross their name off a list. I don't know any of their names, uh, but I was there every week. And so we went to chapel four times a week and I'm not kidding. I probably remember two of them just because they didn't stick because I was trying to sleep or do work or whatever. One that I remember though, it's the first time I heard this message. A guy got up there and said, we teach that God hates the world and we teach that this place is gonna burn and we teach that he doesn't care. But how does that reconcile with a God that says what I created was good? How does that reconcile with a God that says, I'm gonna create a new heavens and a new earth and you're gonna keep kind of the same body? How does it reconcile with the fact that God loves this place and he loves us because he created all those things? So when it says in Colossians 1 that he's reconciling all things, you know what he's doing? He's reconciling all things. That's why I think heaven's gonna look a little bit like this place now and not just us singing hymns for eternity because that doesn't move my needle too, too much after a while, you know? And I'm just gonna admit that as a professional Christian, right? It's, it's why Jesus says I've come not just to reconcile your spiritual state, but the whole world around everything you see and the peace of God then extends and overflows into all of it. Biblical peace begins with restoring our relationship with God and overflows onto others and it extends to the world around us. It restores, moves from brokenness to wholeness, all that which sin divided. It's this beautiful idea. We talked about it for, like I said, a month, and we defined it as the recapturing of shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace that they used in the first century. It's this concept that was the webbing together of God, the humans, and all creation, and justice, fulfillment, and delight, the way things were supposed to be. Great. <laughs> and this is where I think this beatitude gets tough. I think none of us can disagree with any of that. I hope, Right? I hope we can all come together and say God is a God of peace and God cares about peace and God wants you to be at peace with him and with the person around you and with everything that you come in contact with, the earth and dogs and horses and all the things in between. I think we know peace really well. The problem is that God doesn't say blessed are those people who know peace. He said blessed are the peacemakers. I think... Social media has a lot of good, but one of the bads about it is it allows us to believe this false narrative that we're more active than we are. It allows us to buy into this idea that because I know something and I push a like button, I've fought for it or I've changed something. It allows us to believe that liking something and acting on something are the same. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peace likers. That's the hard part for me. (laughs) There's a story that's used a lot and different skits and videos on Christian sites, and it's just good. It kind of defines the difference between knowing and actually doing, between knowing and acting on, and it goes like this. It's this dad that goes to his teenage daughter and says, hey, I need you to clean your room, you know? And she says, yeah, absolutely, I'll get right on that. She says, great, thanks, appreciate it. Walks away, comes back a couple hours later, walks by the room, it's still filthy. He goes to his daughter and he says, hey, I thought I asked you to clean your room. She said, you did. And I've been researching the different methods of cleaning on how to get that done. He says, okay. She said, I'm just doing some research. I love it. We're gonna clean the room. Great, walks away, comes back a couple hours later. And he says, hey, the room is still not clean. He said, Dad, I know. I'm looking up historical cleaning methods and the best products to use, and I, I love cleanliness. And I just, I want you to know that I'm, I know a lot about cleaning now. It's so good. He walks away, he comes back the next day. It's still not clean. He says, hey, I said clean your room. And she said, you, you will not believe this. I have a group of friends coming together tonight, and we are going to discuss the value of cleanliness in community. 
And we're going to discuss the value of why clean rooms matter and discuss why cleanliness is next to godliness. And he says, but I ask you to do something about it. Sometimes we know too much and it causes us to be paralyzed in action. Jesus says, blessed are not just the peace likers or people that know what peace is. Jesus says, blessed are the peace makers, those who create peace. It says in um, Psalm 34, it says, turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. In Ephesians 6, Paul was talking about what it looks like to live out our faith in the world. And because they understood Roman armor, he ascribes different values of God, of the things that we need to different parts of the Roman warrior. And he says this, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Okay, there's a reason why he says, you know where the gospel of peace goes? on your feet, because you will take it to people. You create it where you go. Blessed are the peacemakers. That means go out and do. Peace is not the absence of something bad. It's the presence of something good. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to take that good thing into the spaces that we go to. We're called to create it. And that's the tension for me. Because we can all get on board with the fact that peace is good. We can probably all get on board that as a culture and as a people, we're not very good at peace. The hard thing is Jesus says, I'm now not just asking you to know it or believe it, but to actually do it, create peace. So the question becomes for me, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? What does that look like? And I think there's really three things. Uh, first, and this might seem pretty basic and pretty elementary, but if you want to be a peacemaker, you got to want it. you got to long for it. So the question that I started with this week for myself is, do I really long for peace? Like, do I want it over other things? Is it something I desire? There's a quarterback, played two weeks ago for the San Francisco 49ers, and um, his name was, uh, oh, I lost his name again, Nick Mullins. That's how much I didn't know this guy, and I know sports. Nick Mullins was a third-string quarterback, which means you should never see the field. He was signed after the draft. He got dropped from one team, picked up on the practice squad of another. And by circumstance, which does not happen very much, San Francisco's first string quarterback popped his ACL, second string hurt his wrist. And so last Monday night, I think it was, this Nick Mullins guy saddled up and he'd never taken an NFL snap, right? And it was funny to watch the game because I play fantasy football. And so everything is about value and how many yards you throw for. And I get really into it and I yell too much at the TV and it's not a peaceable moment for me, right? But... I, I started watching this game, and this guy did really well. Like he, he did exceptionally well. So they started uncovering why he did so well. And it turns out, and it's a really beautiful story, it turns out that he was actually pretty good in college. And after the games, for the last two years, when he was the third string on a practice squad, which means he wasn't ever supposed to see the field, a- after the games, he would go out to the stadium when it was completely empty, and he would run every single play that their offense ran that night. He would take snaps, he would drop back, he would throw the football, he would hand it off. Nobody else was on the field with him. The point was because he wanted it more than anything else. He desired it. Blessed are the peacemakers. If we want to be peacemakers, I think we need to long for it. And if we long for it, I think it stands to reason then that we will work for what we long for. It says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18. It says, and these things are from God who reconciled us, brought peace to us, to himself through Christ, 
and who's given us the ministry of reconciliation, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his plea through us. We pled with you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. So again, he's saying, be made at peace to God. It's this idea that we not only are at peace with God, but he has called us to be ambassadors for his peace. And an ambassador simply means someone that represents something that isn't there. You are going to represent something that people don't know of or see, but you can't help but talk about it. Since we just had an election, I, I thought this week about, um, I like saying that phrase at the beginning because I feel like everybody gets nervous. <laughs> Since we just had an election, um, I thought about in college in Chicago, I got a part-time job, and I, it was one of the presidential elections. I forget which one, so it probably had to be 2006. And um, I got a job as an election judge. And let me tell you what that is. Somebody told me, hey, Charlie, you want to make easy money? You go to this five, six, seven-hour course, and they give you a crash course, a training, in like voting booths and the little voting mechanism, and they tell you the process by which they count the votes and how to like wrap up these stations. And they say, what you do is they have a couple hundred of you that they put you in Chicago downtown at the Daily Center. And all you have to do, this guy said I've done it for the last two elections, is you sit in this room and there's a couple hundred of you and you just wait. And when there are problems, these voting precincts, so these voting polling places, call this mainline number and they dispatch these people to these voting places that are in utter chaos. And I said, that doesn't sound like fun. He said, dude, you're not going to get called. I've never been called. He said, you're going to get... 10 bucks an hour, and that's a lot of ramen. You're going to get 10 bucks an hour to sit there and do your homework. And I said, that sounds beautiful. And you got, you got 10 bucks an hour for the training, which I didn't listen to in the first place, you know? It was like chapel. So, um, so I went, and it's 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. My name's not getting called. Every once in a while, they'd call a name. They're like, ha-ha, you, right? So it's 6 o'clock. Voting closes at 7. Might have been 5.45. And all of a sudden, they say, hey, Charlie, right now. And I said, no. Right? And, yeah. and I said, yeah, and that, that's me. And they said, hey, we got a place for you to go. And I said, oh, okay. So they put me in a car and they drove me to this location on the north side of Chicago. Guys, it was, I was 20 years old, I think. It was in utter chaos. Machines were broken. Lines were wrapped around the block. People really wanted to vote. I think this was maybe the first Obama election. I can't remember. So people in Chicago were really excited. And I show up and they told these people, this is your ambassador to make this thing better. And they look at me, everybody at this polling place that had been there for 12 hours. And they say, what do we do? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) And they said, here's all our problems. How do we fix it? And I was like, oh my gosh, you know? They thought that I was the ambassador for what was going to fix their problem. And I got lucky that it's Chicago, so I just let everybody vote two or three more times, and we called it a day. Um, (laughs) Low-hanging fruit, guys. Easy jokes, right? Jesus says, blessed are the people that create peace everywhere they go. Paul says that what that looks like is you're an ambassador for peace. That means everywhere you go, you don't just long for it, but you work. You work towards it when you walk into spaces that don't know what it is. But I think it's, again, a little bigger than that. I think also, not only do we long for it or work towards it, but I think if we're really peacemakers, and this is the hardest part, we have to sacrifice for it. We have to. Because here's the truth about peace. Is that peace is never free. It always comes at a cost. Always. Sometimes we wish it was free. Sometimes we think it should be. But even when you look, 
Now, what God did, it comes at a cost. Colossians 1, let's go back there. It says, All the fullness dwell in the Son through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace. Here's how, through the blood of his cross. Peace is never free. There's a word that we don't use much. It's called propitiation. It's used to describe what Jesus did on the cross. It's used to describe the Old Testament um, way of making amends for sin when they sprinkled blood. It's this idea that God is angry at conflict, chaos, and sin. And something has to appease his wrath. And so what propitiation means is that Jesus paid the price, paid the cost with his blood for the wrath of God. Peace is never free. John Stott said, for the peace of God is not peace at any price. He made peace with us at immense cost, even at the price of the lifeblood of his only son. Because sometimes we want peace, but the question we have to ask is, what are we willing to pay for it? Because peace is never free. It costs something for you to make it. In the first century world, I'll just tell you about it in Matthew 5, a little later on in verse 38 through 41, Jesus outlines it. First century Jews, they're being occupied by Roman citizens, and, and he says three things. He says, hey, look, you've heard it said that retaliation's okay, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is verse 38. He says, but, but I'm going to tell you something different, right? He says, hey, if somebody strikes you, turn the other cheek. We've probably heard that verse before. And then he goes on, and he says, hey, if somebody asks you for, for your tunic, which in the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, was one of your unalienable rights. You, you did not give your tunic. That was your family identifier. You didn't give it to somebody. He says, if somebody asks for it, you give it to him, And you give him your outer coat as well. And then he says, and this is my favorite one, he says, if somebody stops you and says, hey, walk a mile with me, he says, walk two. And what that meant was, in the first century world that Rome oppressed the people, Roman soldiers would move into cities and towns. They would move into these places and they had armor and they had weapons and they had things they didn't want to carry and so they got the people that they were oppressing to do their work, right? And so they would stop Jews and they'd say, hey, I need you to carry this for me. And by Roman law, you had to. You had to carry it one mile, right? You got to think about that. I can be hanging out with my family. A Roman soldier can say, hey, carry this. And I have no choice but to stop what I'm doing and carry his stuff because he owns me. That is not good. I would fight back against that. Jesus says in that situation, don't carry it one, carry it two miles. Peace comes at a cost. So that people might know that I'm a God of peace. It says it like this. Jesus is the true peacemaker and brings peace not by bringing violence on others, but by having violence done to him. A peacemaker longs for peace, he works for peace, and he sacrifices for peace. The question I'm asking myself this week, and I hope you ask yourself, is am I sacrificing, do I long for, do I work towards peace in this world, in my family, in my job, on Facebook, (laughs) you know? Uh, A couple practical examples, because this is pretty ethereal of what it might look like. Somebody sent this to me a couple weeks ago after one of the messages and I liked it. Dallas Willard is a prophet DTS and he is brilliant. And I love kind of the freshman in college prof thing because, you know, some freshmen think they're pretty smart and they try to bow up to these profs, but they don't realize that this prof's been doing it for 30 years and heard your question 70 times, you know? And uh, the story goes like this. Somebody wrote and said, at the end of one of his philosophy classes, a student raised his hand and objected um, to one of, Willard's statements, and it was both insulting towards Dallas Willard and clearly wrong. Instead of correcting him, Dallas gently said that this would be a good place to end class for the day. After, a friend approached Dallas and said, why did you let him get away with that? 
Why didn't you demolish him? Dallas replied, I was practicing the simple discipline of not having to have the last word. When we talk about blessed are the people that make peace, the peacemakers in our world that are longing for it, that are working towards it, and that are sacrificing for it, sometimes we have to realize that it means that we are sacrificing our right to be right so that we might reflect peace in our world. That's difficult because I always want to be right. We're going to have family meals on Thanksgiving, and I don't know about you, but there is some tension in family meals. And we say at the beginning, we're never going to talk politics, and we're never going to talk life choices, and we're never going to talk religion, but it always happens. And in that moment, am I a force of reconciliation and peace, or do I represent conflict? Peace is hard, because maybe it means sitting on what I believe to be right so that people might know that God is a God of peace. I think of different ways that we do this, and I think the question isn't, sometimes we get bogged down and say, well, how can I, the world is broken, how can I fix it? You cannot, right? Hate to tell this to you. Miss America Pageants 101, you cannot bring world peace by yourself. You cannot do it. But what I think you can do is affect peace in the different spheres of influence you have, and that's where we start. Whether it's in a class, whether it's at a dinner table. Andrea Herndon, she's on staff here, and when I asked people to send in different family rhythms, we do this every week, usually it's at the top, now it's in the middle, to send in family rhythms to reflect their family's values, because that's what the kingdom of God is. We've had different kinds of rhythms throughout this series. Andrea said, we started a tradition, a rhythm, a value in my family, and it's called Pie Night. It's the night before Thanksgiving. She said, on Thanksgiving, at the end of the night, you're way too full to eat pie, and you're probably weeping because the Cowboys lost. Um, just me? Okay. So you're, you're, not, you're just not hungry anymore. And she said, so what we started doing was we started doing pie night the night before because we love pies. And then we started inviting some of our neighbors and our families. She says, we just get together, and we laugh, and we love one another, and we just have a good time amongst a season that's kind of chaotic. And she said, my brother actually started doing it when he's not with me in his neighborhood. And she said, now her friends in the neighborhood around her will ask her, hey, are we doing pie day this year? And she says, of course we are. It's this beautiful, small example of how we can be peacemakers in the influence and the spheres that God has given us. The question we have to ask is, are we being peacemakers? And, and I think that question, like everything else in the Beatitudes, is a bit nuanced. I think it's how we bring peace to conflict-ridden situations but ultimately, if we're going to back this out all the way, I think the pursuit of peace is the pursuit of people knowing Jesus because that's where peace comes from. And so out of the overflow of the peace we find in Jesus, it filters into the different facets of our life. Our end goal is that people might know Jesus and their peace might overflow as well. So one of the basic questions I've been asking myself is do I long for, work towards, and sacrifice so that others might know Jesus? Sometimes it's really easy to not do that or just to share a testimony on Facebook. And those things are fine, by the way, but it's not enough. That's why we send teams all over the world, right? Because we want people to know Jesus because that's what it means to be a peacemaker. People might understand that the peace starts with their relationship with God, but it doesn't end with their relationship with God. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. Those of you that make peace, that long for it, that work towards it, that sacrifice for it, because that's who God is. And then he ends it by saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I love how it ends. Um, and like we've talked about each week, Jesus is talking about his kingdom. So there is a fulfillment that's one day, and then there's a fulfillment of this is what it looks like every day, right? 
And so the one day, you know, we see it pretty clearly in um, Zechariah 9.10. He says, I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and from the warehouses of Jer- the war horses from Jerusalem. I'll destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. It's painting the picture of one day. God created and started with peace and he will get it back because he paid the price for it. And that's the big picture of the kingdom of God. It's what we work towards. But in the everyday, he said, blessed are the peacemakers for you will be called children of God. It's this idea that we look like God and if God's God of peace, we will too. It's identity. It's now that we're part of God's family, we look like God. It's why everybody looks at my daughter and says, she looks like Sarah and she kind of looks like you. You know, it's this beautiful picture that we look like who we're family with. But it's more than that. I love that he says... You will be called children. The word there is literally sons, but he means daughters too. You will be called children of God. In the Old and New Testament, God doesn't just call you by calling you on the phone or saying, hey, join me. What it means when he says called is literally, it means he gives us identity. When it says called, it's always an identity shaper. When he calls Peter, it's an identity shaper. When he calls Abraham, it's an identity shaper. That You will no longer find your identity in that but in me. This is the beginning of the family of God. And so he says, blessed are you who are peacemakers, for you will find your identity in me. And why that matters is because making peace is so incredibly difficult because it's not natural. There's a principle that I read about this week called the cushion of the sea. It's used in Samaritan language and in some novels. And essentially what it means is there's this one story about the submarine that came up after a while and there's a boat on the, on the top of the water and said, hey, how'd that storm affect you? And the guy says, what storm? It's the idea that the deeper you go in the ocean, to this day there are still places that have never been agitated because it's so deep. No matter the chaos or conflict going on in the, on the on the surface of the water, you get on deep enough and there are parts of our seas that have never been moved. What he means there, essentially, is that you are so deeply rooted with your identity in me that even though we fight for peace and sometimes we get it and sometimes we don't, and there might be another shooting tomorrow, what he's saying is it shouldn't detour you from your identity as a peacemaker. <laughs> because that's who you are. Fundamentally, that's who you are deep down. So if you have good days or bad days or doesn't go your way or you're going to fight over Thanksgiving meal with your family over politics. He says, remember, don't let that shake you from your identity. I have called you as my sons and daughters and we are peacemakers. It's this beautiful truth that God says, this is not just what you do, but it is who you are and all the things that you do. It's why Jesus says in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you peace as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid no matter what else goes on, because Jesus knew what those guys were about to go through. And it was not without conflict. But he says, no matter what, you will be a people of peace. I want to end with a story of a guy named Telemachus. He was a monk in the fourth century. And I read about him this week, and it was really interesting. When I asked the question, peace seems like this really big conflict, and, and, and this big concept, and what can I do to actually affect change in my world? What I th- think the Beatitudes point to is, hey, you do peace where you can do peace and you let God handle how big that is, right? So there's this monk in the fourth century named Telemachus, and he sensed that God wanted him to go to Rome. I'm going to read this excerpt from um, the story that I found. It says, when he arrived in the city, people were thronging in the streets. He asked why everyone was so excited and was told that 
This was the day that the gladiators would be fighting and killing each other in the Colosseum. He thought to himself, four centuries after Christ and they're still killing each other for our enjoyment. So, true story, he ran into the Colosseum, heard the gladiators shouting, Hail Caesar, we die for Caesar, and thought, this is not right. He jumped over the railing and went out to the middle of the field. He got between two gladiators. He held up his hands and said, In the name of Christ, forbear. Stop. The crowd protested and began to shout, Run him through, run him through. A gladiator came over and hit him in the stomach with the back of his sword. It sent him sprawling onto the sand. He got up and ran back again and said, In the name of Christ, forbear. The crowd continued to chant, Run him through, run him through. One gladiator came over and plunged his sword through the little monk's stomach and he fell into the sand, which began to turn crimson with his blood. One last time he gasped out, In the name of Christ, forbear. A hush came over the 80,000 people in the Colosseum. Soon a man stood and left, and then another, and then another, and then more. And within minutes, all 80,000 people emptied out of the Colosseum. It was the last known gladiatorial contest in the history of Rome. Blessed are the people who bring peace to the spaces they go. They are the children of God. We might be really good at conflict in our world, but Jesus says, you are my ambassadors for something else. That's that's what you're created for. You're my ambassadors to bring peace to a world that only knows chaos and conflict. You're my ambassadors to show people that what they were created for is so much better and so much, um, so much better and so much more peaceable than what they see every single day. And maybe it just takes all of the church being the church, willing to long for, work towards, and sacrifice for this concept of peace that God says, I give you. Now go and live that out every single day. Please pray for us. God, I'm thankful for the charge you've given us to be peace creators or peacemakers, not just peace likers, I pray. This week, as we leave this place, we ask two questions. How much do we desire peace and what are we doing to work for it? To show people that Jesus brings ultimate peace and then have that filter into the spaces of my life, family and work and community and all the other ones that we haven't listed. God, give us a passion for peace. Allow the sacrifice that comes that peace requires, allow that to be worth it. Allow that to be a joyful moment for us. So when people say, why are we peaceful? We can say, do you know what Jesus did for you? I can't help but because I am a member of his family. May that cause great joy as we realize what it means to be blessed. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.